Hello and welcome to Just Saying Sports with Jake and Sean. I'm Jake Adnip here with Sean Dwyer. How's it going, guys? We're back with another episode this weekend after quite a busy week in sports. The NBA playoffs first round have been rocking. The NHL playoffs are well underway. Uh, The NFL draft is still ongoing as we record this podcast today. And the Major League Baseball season is still barely getting moving. So we got quite a bit to talk about today. And uh, we'll just lay it out uh, for him here, Sean. So what do we got on the docket here? Uh, To start off with, we're going to go conference by conference, Western, Eastern Conference, NBA playoffs. Then we got some some stuff to talk about with Major League Baseball. And then to finish up today, we're going to go through some NFL draft, you know, some stuff that happened in the first and second round that might have caught our eye. Yeah, I definitely want to talk a little bit about the draft there and tell you guys who we think, you know, was the best pickup, who slipped and why or why we have questions about it. Um, who was drafted high and why. So we'll make sure we get to that later on in the show. But before we get started, we're going to take a little break and we're going to go right into the NBA playoffs. So, Sean, with the first round of the NBA playoffs coming to a conclusion, uh, the whole West Western Conference has finished up their games and is about to start the second round. Well, we got a couple game sevens over in the East. Uh, it's been pretty good playoffs so far. Uh, some surprises, especially with what we talked about a couple weeks ago. So uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, get us started off? Well, to start with, we're going to the West. We're going to start with Houston and Minnesota. Um, Houston won this series in five games. And then just some quick thoughts from that is, you know, everyone expected Houston to dominate the series, and they did. They won in five games. They lost game three, but... You know, in a seven-game playoff series, you're going to lose. More likely than not, you're going to lose one, no matter how good you are. But Houston, well, you, you know, that you keep going. Oh, I was going to say, well, yeah, you're going to lose a game. But the thing is, is, you know, I, we knew that this, these, this Rocket team can be for real. Uh, we had concerns about James Harden and Chris Paul stepping up. And it didn't even have to be like that because the whole team really just played their heart out. If you like they, three out of the four games, they won by like they, they won by 18 plus points, 19 plus points. Yeah, you know, they dominated Minnesota in three of the four games that they won outside of game one when they won by three. Yeah. And but the thing is with Houston, I'm still not completely sold on Houston. You know, I'm James Harden and Chris Paul, you know, they have not had a good history when it comes to postseason basketball. And they're going to have to prove it to me, you know starting this next series against Utah and possibly in the conference finals against Golden State if Golden State beats New Orleans, that they're going to have to do it against better competition than Minnesota for me to start believing in them. Oh, I definitely agree. And I think Utah is going to – Utah is really, really exciting for me right now. We'll move into that matchup uh, that just happened. Uh, Utah just shut down Oklahoma City last night and knocked that big three out of the playoffs. So that didn't go too well down there in Oklahoma City, but – uh, Utah and Donovan Mitchell is raising some eyebrows. Yeah, you know what? We'll just jump right into that series next since, you know, they're going to be taking on Houston. But that game, that series was not what I expected it to be. You know, I expected Oklahoma City and Russell Westbrook with Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, Stephen Adams 
I expected them to beat Utah in five games. You know, I didn't think Donovan Mitchell leading a rookie leading the playoff team. I didn't think that that was a good recipe for success. And then, you know what? I'm going to call myself out. And then um, when we did our NBA playoff preview, I said Russell Westbrook would dominate Ricky Rubio. And Ricky Rubio must have heard me and did not like it because he showed up for this series. Yeah, he did. Up until I know he went out in the first quarter last night and his knee's a little messed up or his ankle or something like that. And he's a little questionable for the first game of this uh, next series with the Rockets. But I just wanted to say, you know, Donovan Mitchell has definitely impressed me. I mean, he just – he he's scored, I think it's 171 points in his first six playoff games, which is outrageous. Um, I know it's against Oklahoma City, and they have to, you know, continuously just feed him the ball. But when they go up against Houston, I think it's going to be a kind of a different game. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that there in a second. Yep. Um, going into the next series, you know, we'll just preview, we'll recap, Golden State, San Antonio. Um, to me, San Antonio was just overmatched. It was, it was not good for them. You know, they didn't have Kawhi Leonard all year. And then, you know, Popovich, for personal reasons, yeah. missed some of those games. San Antonio just – they were behind the eight ball from the start. Yeah, I don't – I didn't see, you know, them – you know, we, we said this and we said this in our, you know, NBA playoff beginning that they were going to steal a game, you know. No matter how – yeah, no, yeah, exactly. No matter how overmatched the Spurs are, they're not going to let you just sweep them out of the playoffs. No, no pop, pop, no pop, Kawhi, no Kawhi. Like it, it just, it doesn't happen, you know? So they did, they did exactly what we expected and, you know, they will have to get younger soon, you know, yes. with, with Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker, they're really talking about actually finishing up here soon. Exactly. They're going to have to do a whole new overhaul. So. Yeah, you talk about Manu and Parker being older, and then, you know, they got Pau Gasol, who's not exactly a young guy. And then along with um, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, he's not getting any younger either. And so the Spurs, you know, they're going to have to start working and getting younger. Um, next up, Portland and New Orleans, a series that, you know, we both said New Orleans, if they got that second game in Portland, which they did, um, it wasn't going to go back to Portland, and it didn't with New Orleans getting the sweep. Yeah, that was definitely impressive to me, and I was very happy with Anthony Davis. Just like we talked about before, everybody was talking, oh, he can't win a playoff series. Like, There's no way he's going to be able to carry the whole team. And now they're just talking about what are they going to do with Boogie. Anthony Davis is good enough to carry the whole franchise. And it's it's just funny because these guys could be amazing and Drew Holiday has been snapping, and I mean, to be honest with you, I think the Pelicans had the most dominant series, I mean, out of anybody. I mean, obviously, they're the only ones who swept, but if you're talking about, like, pure play, especially over Portland, who's been a pretty good team all season, I was impressed with New Orleans. Yeah, and to me, and for Portland, looking at this series, I think Damian Lillard has to start looking at possibly leaving Rip City out there or to kind of make a pun here, he's going to say RIP to his chances of ever winning anything because Portland is not – they're not in a position to contend in the Western Conference at all. Yeah, so to preview these, you know, conference semifinal matchups, 
Uh, we got the Houston Rockets against the Utah Jazz and then the Golden State Warriors against the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, since we're here now, let's go ahead and make our picks. So in the top, you know, with the Houston Rockets and the Utah Jazz, who do you think is going to win this series? How many games and why? I think Houston's going to win this series, but I think it's going to be six to seven games. Um, Utah, they're, they have momentum. They have momentum on their side. They're not going to go down easily to Houston, no matter how great Houston's playing at the end of the regular season and starting with their series against Minnesota. But this is, as well as I said, this is James Harden and Chris Paul's chance to put on that show in the playoffs that their careers they haven't historically done. And if they can do that, they'll beat Utah. But right now, Donovan Mitchell is leading this Utah team on a great run, and I don't think they're going to go down easy no matter who they're playing. Now, I like your analysis there, Sean. Uh, I'm going to take Houston to win this series as well. But that's just because I told you, I mean, if you look at this team consistently throughout the year, they've streaked and won 14, 15 games. Like, I think they really can turn on the Jets if they get, the, if they get it right. And this might just be the year. With the way the NBA playoffs are shaping up, you know, it looks like there may be a changing of the guard here. So I really hope that, you know, James Harden and Chris Paul can kind of pull it out. But like you said, Donovan Mitchell could really push the Jazz past the Rockets if they decide to, you know, shoot themselves out of the game. And then next up we have the Golden State Warriors and the New Orleans Pelicans who actually tip off game one tonight. Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to talk about a juicy matchup for me, I, I like this a lot, you know, Steph's still rehabbing. This is going to be a little, uh, you know, a little iffy on exact matchups because this is always kind of weird on how they play Anthony Davis with Golden State. And having Anthony Davis and Draymond, Draymond's one of the best defenders in the NBA, but that's still a mismatch. And, uh, you know, they have Kevin Durant on Anthony Davis. There's, There's completely contrasting styles of game there. So it'll be really interesting to see how they play this series out. And if, I mean, if Drew Holiday can stay hot and play like he is on offense, I think this game could go seven games or the series could go seven games, but I'd feel like I'd be stupid to pick against the Warriors. Yeah, I feel the same way. Picking against Golden State just doesn't seem like the smart move here. I think Golden State does get the series win, but as I said with Houston, Utah, I believe it's going to go five, six, seven games. It's not going to be a sweep. It's going to be a competitive series. And I think New Orleans sticks with the game plan they used against Portland, which is have Anthony Davis kind of control down low and then extend out on shooters on the outside. So Golden State's not getting their easy three-point looks they try and manufacture. But as you said, I'm interested in seeing how Golden State matches up defensively with Anthony Davis, you know, who they have playing with on him, um, how fast are they to double-team him when he gets a, po- a touch in the post. And then is can Holiday continue the great play that he had in the first round? And can they put that all together and possibly sneak one out here with the first couple of games in Golden State like they did in Portland and try and get the series back to New Orleans only being down a game or having it be tied? Yeah, that would be ideal for them. So we're going to go ahead and move over to the Eastern Conference, and we'll be back in just a second. Mm-hmm. 
So we're going to move into the Eastern Conference now, and there's a couple of Game 7 matchups that are happening this weekend that are actually pretty intriguing. And what we're going to do is we're just going to go ahead and go through the ones that are already over with, and then we'll tell you what we think about these other games that are coming up. So, you know, the one seed Toronto Raptors beat the uh, Washington Wizards 4-2. What did you think about that series, Sean? Oh, well, me, to me, Washington put up more of a fight than I expected them to. I thought that Toronto would end this game, the series, in four to five games. Washington got two in there and forced a game six. But, you know, Toronto, to me, they nothing changes in my prediction of Toronto winning the East. Um, I think they're still the best team in the East, and I think they'll have a good series and beat Cleveland or Indiana no matter who they meet. Yeah, now, I mean, I liked – the way that Toronto, you know, did their work when they won games. But the thing was, is when they weren't playing good, they didn't play well. Like they didn't play like a number one seed playoff team when they lost by 11 or or when they lost by 21 points in game three. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's just not – not exactly what I see out of the number one seed just rolling to the, you know, to the conference finals, even over Cleveland or Indiana. But uh, I definitely think that it was easy enough for them to beat Washington and they should be where they are. Now, yeah, and then, yep, go ahead. Oh, no, Sorry. it's all you, all you. Next up, we have Philly and Miami. Uh, Philly won this series four games to one. And, of course, we had the big guest appearance of Meek Mill, freshly out of prison for Game 5. And we're talking about, like, fresher than the pizza from the delivery, man. He was like DiGiorno, man. That's how how fresh out of prison Meek Mill was when he went to the game and rang the bell for the 76ers. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'll just say I still really like Philly. I knew that dominate this series and they really did like it what even in times when they were down by like 15 points they were still playing good basketball and just said hey okay and they came back and just put Miami in the dust and I really like the way that Ben Simmons is playing I like the way that Joel Embiid is even playing with his Batman mask on and uh I really think that Philadelphia has a chance to win the Eastern Conference, like I said. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Philadelphia, to me, um, they played well enough in this first series to convince me that they're going to put either Boston or Milwaukee out in the second round. I think Philly advances to the Eastern Conference Finals now because of the play of Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, you know, Robert Covington, mm-hmm. uh, Dario Saric. Every, the whole process, to say, is coming together for Philadelphia and they're looking like a great team. Yeah. And I really, uh, I'm really excited because they're, they're going to be facing a unmanned Boston team or a Giannis led Milwaukee team that just can't seem to dominate. So we're going to actually dive into that series since we're talking about it already, Sean Um, game seven coming up with the Boston Celtics, Milwaukee Bucks. What do you think? Well, if you remember, I did say that this series was going to go seven games. 
I didn't think one of the both of these teams I didn't think have the killer instinct on their team needed to go out and finish a series in five, six games. I thought this was going to go the distance. And to me right now, it's whoever gets off to the best start of the game, whoever goes to jump out to that seven to eight point lead in the first quarter is probably going to have hold on to it for the whole game because these games have been, I don't want to say boring, but to me, this series has just lacked a big, you know, it factor. And I don't know, this series hasn't really intrigued me. Game seven, whoever wins has to go to Philadelphia. And I don't know, they're just going to go lose to Philadelphia. Well, they're just going to go lose to Philadelphia. Well, I guess that could be the attitude, but I'll, I'll just say I really like Giannis Antetokounmpo, and, but Boston being so far down without Kyrie or Gordon Hayward, I can't believe that they are where they are anyways. So I'm going to give it to Milwaukee, and then the reason why I want that is because I – um, with the matchups with Joel Embiid and Giannis and Ben Simmons and Malcolm Brogdon. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, the other series that's going seven games and nobody ever expected it, I guess, except for a lot of people. But Cleveland and the Indiana are tied at 3-3 going into game seven. And, you know, Indiana just crushed the Cavaliers in game six. Yeah, no, they destroyed them last night, and it, was, it wasn't even a close game. But I believe if we go back and listen to the other podcast, I did think this game was this series was going to go six to seven games. And it's just the Lance Stevenson effect. You know, he gets inside LeBron James' head so easily. And he just forces LeBron into taking those stupid technical fouls that he's taken in the series. And Indiana's played perfectly to push the Cavaliers to the brink of elimination. And in the first round, Cleveland has normally not had this amount of trouble. And I think it's kind of taking their toll on them. So even if they do pull game seven out against Indiana, they got to go play Toronto, a team who, you know, they beat the past couple of years in the playoffs. And Toronto, you know, they're itching to get back at Cleveland. And having to go through a seven-game series with Indiana, I think kind of puts them behind in the second round. But that, saying, but that said, they have to beat Indiana first and foremost. And I believe the game is back in Cleveland tomorrow yeah. night. But you never know, you know, Lance Stevenson in Indiana, you know, more less Lance Stevenson, more Victor Oladipo. You know, he's put on a show in a couple of games in this series, and they're going to have to stop him if they want to even have a shot at Toronto. Well, yeah, I mean, I knew that Cleveland was not going to be able to just roll through this all like handy dandy LeBron James, you know, notebook. It was just Victor Oladipo has turned on the Jets at times, but if he goes cold, Indiana's going to lose. And that's what we've seen here recently. And LeBron James is in game seven mode. I can't see him having a bust. His teammates combined for 22 points. I'm talking about the starting five or the other four people besides him combined for 22 points in the game six. That was pathetic. Uh, you can't expect that from a professional basketball team. So I have a feeling like Cleveland will be able to pull it out, but it's going to be a rough chance against Toronto if they play like they have. Yeah, I also agree that Cleveland's going to win the game. But then again, like I said, going into a, seri- a new series with Toronto, 
a team that wants revenge against you going seven games in the first round with a team like Indiana who's just scrapping their way through and being physical and getting you off your game. It's not the best situation to then go into a highly competitive series with the number one seed. Exactly. Now we're not going to make our picks for the Eastern conference just yet because we don't like to be in hypotheticals. You kind of got a feel for what we think about each of the teams, but we'll have to see as time progresses here. So that's going to do it for our NBA talk today. We're going to give you just a second and we'll be back with a little PSA for the MLB. Welcome back to Just Saying. So, Jake, next on the docket today is, you know, MLB has had 30-plus games postponed or called in this first month of the season. And so before we get into some of the things that we think MLB should do, just what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and this was right at the beginning of the year. This was like literally right opening week. We had three or four postponements in a row, and we were like, hey, Major League Baseball. Why don't you just plan the first two weeks of the season down south and, you know, make everything so it's warm weather and you play down there? Uh, Now look at us. We're almost in May and they're still postponing and delaying games because of snow and ice and terrible rainstorms, which is going to happen, you know, but 30 plus games in a month. So you're talking about on average a game a day is just – moved postponed and there's been so many rescheduled double headers that weren't supposed to happen that it's it's hurt attendance it's hurt a lot of uh revenue for sales at at ballparks everything like that and now that we get we are where we are i think it's time to maybe rethink maybe even the length of the baseball season instead of just making it down south for a month, I think they might have to shorten the baseball season a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's definitely something that I think MLB is going to be forced into looking at after this season going forward. But just to give you an example of how crappy the weather and stuff's been, just here here locally for us in Detroit a couple weekends ago, we had a big series with the Yankees. Well, Friday night got rained out, so they moved a doubleheader to Saturday. Well, the weather wasn't supposed to get better, so then a doubleheader was rained out on Saturday. So you got two games rained out in a row in the middle of April in Detroit. And, you know, Detroit's never had great weather early in the spring, so you need to start looking at maybe – I know they moved the, se- the beginning of the season up this year because they thought the playoffs were going too long. So they wanted to try and get the playoffs over faster or earlier in the year, so they moved the beginning of the season up. And it is not – worked out well for Major League Baseball. But if that's the way that they want to go, like you said, you know, the first two or three weeks, you know, teams in the South should not be playing teams from the South. You know, Los Angeles shouldn't be playing Arizona early in April if that's the way they want to do this. You know, Detroit and Pittsburgh shouldn't have an opening day weekend series when the weather in the North is not as reliable as weather in Arizona where they have a dome or in Los Angeles, 
or in Houston, Dallas, you know, those areas could host games for two weeks, have a lot of home games down there. I know it ends up with them having a lot of away games later in the year, but there's a way to figure it out. I don't know. If you ask me, I would rather have my first 15 games at home where everybody can get into the swing of things and you can win 11 of 15 to start the season and get yourself started. I think that would be a pretty good deal. Yes, but at the same time, you know, it's putting, you know, my whole thing about North teams playing North teams is it puts these teams at a competitive disadvantage early in the season with, you know, bad baseball being played in bad weather. You know, it gives more of a chance for injuries that will have a long-term effect on the season. But at the same time, like you just suggested, playing 15 games on the road to open the season also brings that competitive disadvantage into play. Where I think, you know, maybe teams with can have the first two weeks of the season at their spring training locations. That way you're not getting a lot of serious home t- – you don't get teams playing 15-game homestands to start the series. Of course. And, I mean, that's that's just not even possible to try to logistically work out. And, and I know baseball is the American tradition. It's been 162 games for as long as I know. I know I read a couple of books when they first started expanding it, but it's – 162 games from March 27th to October 1st is a lot. And we've talked about this for years and everybody knows like, man, what if they put it down to the, whatever, whatever the next benchmark would be like 124 or 131 or whatever it would be. Why wouldn't they drop just those 20 games out of the first month out of the season? I don't think it would be the worst thing ever if they extended a little bit of spring training and even maybe started spring training a little bit later instead of cutting the playoffs earlier. Well, I think when you start cutting games out of the season, you're going to start kind of angering the old traditional baseball fans because you have you know records that are established and been set for many, many years on the 162-game season. You know, the, if we move less games, you know, the all-time records – are never going to get touched ever again. You know, the bat, the batting average uh, record will probably get broken because there's less games. Yeah. But you'll, but you'll never see somebody touch, you know, Barry Bonds' 73 home runs in 120 games. You'll never see the RBI record get touched. You'll never see stolen base records get touched. And you'll, I think it's just people are re- reluctant to cut games off because you'll, you won't have the same effect with the records races that you well maybe well maybe sure maybe you could what if they what if giving these guys an extra 30 days out of the year gives them the extra pop in their step a little extra you know power in their bat imagine you only got to pay 120 games out of the year you can slug you know you don't got to take some games off you ain't got to take days off but well just doing some quick math in my head you know 73 home runs you double that. So. Oh yeah, you'd be you have, you'd have to hit a home run every other game. And I just I don't think that's possible. Come on. No, well, of course not. But with the way that launch angles and baseballs and baseballs going, you never know how the future works. But that's all speculation. There's no way I actually see the major league baseball shorting the season. I'm just trying to say there might be a better way to do things than to cancel 100 games and then try to cram them all together at once. Yeah, you know, it, it, help, it helps nobody. No team ends up 
being benefited from having to play doubleheaders multiple times early in the season. Of course. Now, we're going to wrap up our little talk with the Major League Baseball. Let us know if you have any ideas on what the Major League should do about this postponement crisis. If they should shorten the season, if you think I'm crazy, if you, if you think, you know, maybe they could just put domes in every city. You just let us know. But we're going to get into the NFL draft here in just a second, so we'll see you then. And we're back with our NFL draft talk. Now, after the first and second rounds have finished going into the third round, Sean, I just got a couple questions for you. So who do you think made the biggest mistake in the first round of the NFL draft? Well, if you look at it right off the top, you know, the easy answer would be Cleveland taking Baker Mayfield at one. Um, To me, the pick just makes no sense. The reasons that they gave for picking Baker Mayfield to me make no sense. But at the end of the day, they made their pick at one, and they didn't give anything up. The biggest mistake of the first round to me was made by the New Orleans Saints. They gave up their 27th pick, their 147th overall pick in this year's draft, and a 2019 pick in next year's draft. And they gave it to the Green Bay Packers. And at 14 overall, they selected Marcus Davenport, a defensive end from Texas San Antonio. To me, that move just – I don't understand it because Marcus Davenport is not a finished, clean product coming out of University of Texas San Antonio. He's not an immediate guy who's going to make big contributions. He still has to learn the finer points of playing defensive end. So trading up into the top 15 to take kind of a project defensive end and in the meantime giving up a later pick in this draft, which will be taken sometime today, at 147 and your first rounder next year. It just seems like a lot to me to give up for a project. I could definitely see that. I know a lot of people thought that when they were moving up, they were going to draft Lamar Jackson. That's exactly what I thought. I thought, you know, Drew Brees is getting older. You know, he's got that probably last contract. They're going to get Lamar Jackson, have Lamar Jackson learn from one of the most accurate, well-prepared quarterbacks of all time in NFL and have him slide in there in a year and a half, two years when Drew Brees is done playing. And that way you have a successor, but you know, obviously they thought Marcus Davenport was a better talent than Lamar Jackson and traded up for him. Well, when you look at it, I think Lamar Jackson slipped as far as he did, maybe because he didn't have an agent, you know, it seems like the NFL teams do a lot of stuff on this personality. Um, you know, these personality assessments, and they really take a lot of stock in what type of people these guys are. And, you know, we definitely saw it with, like, Darius Geis, Mr. Juice Man, and uh, it seemed like a little bit with Lamar Jackson. You know, it seemed like they were a little bit, you know, kind of tiptoey around the fact that, you know, they didn't quite have a grasp on exactly what they were. And when he slipped down to the Ravens, I think that, you know, the Ravens made the best possible decision by trading to the very last pick in the first round and picking up Lamar Jackson. You know, with Joe Flacco having one year on 
his contract left, they can basically just cut him. All of his money's already paid to him, and it'll just be some dead cap room or dead caps, dead dead money against the cap. And then they have a year polished Lamar Jackson who has thrown and ran, rushed for more touchdowns than anybody in college football over the last three years. Yeah, Lamar Jackson definitely, I think, fits what Baltimore's going to go, where they're going to go in the future. Joe, this is the last year on Joe Flacco's contract where he's guaranteed money. So, like you said, after this season, they could cut Flacco with just money against the cap, not losing any money that's guaranteed to him, and give Lamar Jackson a year to acclimate to an NFL playbook an NFL environment, have him learn from, you know, Joe Flacco, and they have Robert Griffin III on that roster right now too. Does he stick around or does he get cut in training camp? Probably. But having him around Robert Griffin III, who was another quarterback coming out of high school, who was – or college, I mean, that was a Heisman Trophy winner on how to handle kind of the expectations that the NFL has for these guys, I think it's a good fit for him personally. And I think Baltimore took not a glaring position of need at quarterback, but they took a pick for the future of the franchise. Yeah, and I think that they made a good decision. They get that fifth-year option on them since they came into the first round to pick them. And they, they made a great, great steal there. But speaking of steals, Sean, um, what do you think was the biggest you know, steal of the first round? If it was somebody that slipped or if somebody you know, traded ahead of somebody else wanted, or even just pick somebody who everybody else was slated to go somewhere else. Who do you think was the biggest steal in the first round? Well, personally, I think we're both kind of leaning the same way on this one. But to me, the biggest steal was Calvin Ridley falling to Atlanta at 26. Um, Baltimore, you know, they traded their, some of their picks, and they picked Lamar Jackson at 32. But they had some other picks. And, you know, they passed on a glaring position of need. They had Calvin Ridley right there at their pick, you know, Baltimore needs wide receivers. They had Calvin Ridley there three times and passed on him. Dallas, another team that just cut Des Bryant, they passed on a wide receiver. And then, of course, you have DJ Moore going in the first round before Calvin Ridley goes. I was sitting there watching the first round going, what is wrong with Calvin Ridley? Why is he falling? But then you see his name come off the board at 26 to Atlanta, and you're like, you know what, that's probably the best fit for him. You know, he's going to learn from Julio Jones. He's going to be in an offense that throws the ball around and has a good run-pass mix. I think he can be the complementary piece to Julio Jones that Roddy White was for many years. I definitely agree with you. That I definitely think that Calvin Ridley was the, the steal of the draft in the first round. Um, I mean, we we both had him going around – 14, 15, I think I had him going, yeah, at 15 or 14 to Green Bay, which Green Bay traded out of that spot with, like you said, the aforementioned uh, New Orleans Saints. And I thought they might even take Calvin Ridley right there um, with the departure of Willie Sneed and Brandon Cooks and, you know, them just trying to make sure that Drew Brees had weapons for the next couple of years. It was just, you know, put somebody against or across from Michael Thomas. I was just uh, surprised when they took Marcus Davenport, like you said, that they didn't add some type of weapon. But for um, for the draft itself, where do you think uh, the top quarterbacks fell, and do you think they fell in the right place? I think that Baker Mayfield, to me, wasn't 
he wasn't going to land in the right spot no matter where he was. I don't think because someone, if he thought went was taken in the first round, that meant somebody had enough confidence in him to become a starter right away. I don't think that is a great situation for Baker Mayfield as a player because he's going to have to change his style. You know, people are arguing over that fact if he's going to be able to be the same as he was in college. I don't think so. But when you look at Sam Darnold going to the Jets, I think that situation fits him perfectly because he's going to learn from a great guy in Josh McCown. He's going to have a chance to learn exactly how Josh McCown has had a long NFL career, mostly as a backup. But I'm going to tell you, those intangibles of being a backup transfer over to being a starter. I think Sam Darnold's in a great position to learn. Josh yeah. Allen, Buffalo, I don't know. I don't know how that one's going to work out. And then Josh Rosen to Arizona, I think, is the perfect fit for him. Well, yeah, the big thing for me on a couple of these quarterbacks is um, Sam Darnold going to the Jets. It's kind of funny. I, I was, I don't know if I was dreaming or daydreaming the other day, but I was just kind of picturing these guys' names on the back of their jerseys and see who, who I could picture wearing. You know, before the draft happened, I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, I think Sam Darnold would probably – be the one to look pretty good in a Jets uniform, you know, and if there was any type of misconception, I do not think that he should have fell to three if the Cleveland Browns were going to take a quarterback. Um, I still thought Josh Rosen was the best quarterback in the draft, but I could have never seen him in Cleveland. Um, I think he did do uh, pretty well by falling all the way down to Arizona. I know he came out and said he was all angry and pissed off that he slipped. But I think when you go to Arizona and even he has a good chance to be behind Sam Bradford and take in a little bit of experience before any type of, you know, franchise quarterback talk starts to happen. But, you know, Arizona is a place that would love to put their faith in an old franchise quarterback that'll be able to lead them for the next 10 years or so. I mean, if you look at it, if you go back to your original question of which quarterback is in the best position, I think the obvious answer is Josh Rosen, just based off of the help that's already around him. You know, Larry Fitzgerald's an established veteran that has, you know, he's one of the best wide receivers of all time. Great for a young quarterback to have that safety blanket. But then if you want to go look at another great player that's going to be around him is David Johnson. He's going to have a great guy around him you know, a running back that he'll be able to hand the ball off to. He won't be he won't be in a position where he has to throw the ball 30, 40 times a game in his rookie year. And then they went out in their second round pick and picked up another wide receiver in Christian Kirk, who is a playmaker from Texas A&M. So I think Josh Rosen is – the Arizona offense is going to be kind of morphed around him. He's going to fit into there, and he's just going to have to play like Carson Palmer did. You're going to have to be – able to throw the ball, but you're going to have the guy behind you and David Johnson to hand the ball off to. And the offense out there, I think, is looking really great for the future. Well, awesome. So I just wanted to bring up one more thing before we conclude our show here today, guys. Uh, You know that we're from Detroit, and those Lions are always pretty questionable on draft day. Uh, So I remember in my mock, I had them taking – the guard, Will Hernandez, who ended up getting drafted early in the second round. Um, Sean, you had the, them taking Harold Landry from the defensive end from Boston College, correct? Yes. 
Now, just to point out how wrong we always are, um, neither one of them even got drafted in the first round, let alone by the Lions. So, boo-hoo us. <laughs> but the, the Lions ended up picking center Frank Ragnow from Arkansas. And a lot of people were upset with the pick to begin with because there was still some stars on the board. And um, uh, a lot of people thought that when Matt Patricia was going to come in, he might bring that Patriots philosophy with him and tell Bob Quinn, say, you got to pick the best player who's available. It doesn't matter who it is. And it didn't happen, but I, I'm really happy with it. I think they addressed the need that they wanted. You know, I thought they were going to take an offensive guard um, and move Glasgow over to center. But if they're going to leave Glasgow at his natural position of guard and bring in Ragnow for center um, – the, the metrics I've seen on Ragnow are pretty outstanding, actually. Uh, he was out with injury for a little while in college, but he played over 2,000, 2,300 or 2,400 snaps, and he never allowed a sack. And what I wanted for the Lions to do was to get Matthew Stafford proper protection, which Bob Quinn's done a complete overhaul on the offensive line in the last two years. Now is complete, and they also gave – the chance of a run game uh, coming up. They drafted a running back in the second round uh, with carry on. And I think it's really, it might be, it might be an opportunity for the lions offense to actually have a new dimension. Yeah. Carry on Johnson was taken in the second round, you know, growing up with a family of Alabama fans. I've seen him play playing for Auburn. He can be a back that is a three-down back for Detroit. You know, we haven't had that in the past. They'd be a reliable three-down back. I think he kind of opens up a new dimension for the offense. But I don't know how much playing time he'll get just as the number one running back when we brought in LeGarrette Blunt. Theo Riddick is still there as a pass catcher. But, you know, talk about a Lions draft. No Lions draft would be complete without a pick that just makes no sense. And then I think you get that in the third round with taking Tracy Walker, the safety from Louisiana, a guy that I had never heard of and just watching the draft was told that he was going to be a fifth to sixth round pick, but we take him in the third round. Do you have any insight that I don't know why that happened? I, I think it's like, it's not Louisiana. It's like Louisiana Tech or something like that, isn't it? Louisiana Lafayette. Yeah, Louisiana Lafayette. So, I, I mean, I have no insight on, on it. I just know that the Lions always got to do something to make us blow our minds. And it, at least they made a good pick in Frank Ragnow. He had two the two highest overall scores that Pro Football Focus ever gave the college linemen since they've been doing the metrics. And like I said, he doesn't allow no sacks. And I think if they're going to protect their investment in Matthew Stafford, they did a pretty good job. So I won't talk about their third-round pick. I'll just say that they still have work to do. Yeah, and just my quick take on the Ragnow pick, I think that my first reaction was, you know, like most Lions fans is, why are we taking the center? But then, you know, you start looking at a lot of the stuff that was written about him. You start looking at the metrics, and you start realizing that exactly what you said, protecting the big investment in Matthew Stafford should be the number one priority. And then also – a twofold thing is giving the running game a bit of a sh- bigger shot to get going. I think, you know, that's why I took carry on Johnson to kind of get the running game going more. But with Ragnow, you know, the Lions should be able to run the ball more effectively now, which will give them more of a ball control offense, 
which in the end is going to make the defense better by keeping them off the field more. You're not going to see a lot of those um, three down, throw it all three downs, incompletes, punt the ball, the defense is back out there in a minute 30 of game time. You're not going to see the defense getting gassed as much. So I think that it's in addition to the offensive line, but it also helps the entire team. I definitely agree. Now that's going to do it for our show today. As always, Sean and I would like to say thank you for listening and remind you if you like our show to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Anchor, on all those podcasting apps that are available. If you just go to anchor.com slash Jake Atnip, I believe. It might be just my name, or if you just search Just Saying on Anchor, you'll be able to find the links to all of the places you can listen to our podcast. So make sure you go ahead and give us a like or a follow or anything that you please. As always, I'm Jake Atnip. I'm Sean DeWire. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. All right.